I moved to Toronto three years ago, and I have to say I love this city. My favorite place, though, has got to be the Toronto Islands. The fact that you can take a quick ferry ride over and feel like you're in an oasis, hidden amongst trees and beautiful beaches, with water stretching as far as the eye can see, is pretty magical. But what most people don't know is near where the ferry terminal sits today in Toronto, an old pier used to be there, Pier 9. And on that pier was a huge sign that read Canadian Steamship Lines. And on a warm September night in 1949, Pier 9 was the site of one of the deadliest fires in Toronto's history. I'm Rachel Stewart, and this is Canadian Disasters. Today, we talk about the fire aboard the SS Noronic. The SS Noronic was built in 1913 by the Northern Navigation Line. Her unusual name came from a combination of companies who would eventually amalgamate into the Canadian Steamship Line. NOR was for the Northern Navigation Line. ON was for the Richelieu and Ontario Navigation Company. It was standard practice at the time for that company to end all of their ship's names in an ick. One of her sister ships was called the Huronic, for example. She was built in Port Arthur, Ontario now known as Thunder Bay, and was almost beset by delays from the get-go. Even though she leaves the dock in June of 1913, her big departure for the rest of the ports had to be postponed. You see, she was due to leave on November 8th, right in the middle of the Big Blow, which is the worst weather system to hit the Great Lakes in recorded history. It, in fact, took quite a few boats with her. But sail the Neuronic did, and for the next 36 years, she was known as Queen of the Great Lakes. Affectionately nicknamed Nori, she also happened to be the most luxurious ship on the Great Lakes. On board was a library, a music room, a dance hall multiple lounges. Her dining room, with white tablecloths, beautiful silverware, and porcelain plates, also held fresh flowers every day. And to facilitate easy conversation, most of her decks were of an open variety, so it was easy to communicate across the ship. But what struck many when they were aboard was the intricately carved wood paneling. It was made of cherry, oak, and teak. And these wooden walls were lovingly polished with lemon oil, leaving them gleaming and clean-smelling for decades. Longer than a football field at 117 meters, the SS Neuronic had a capacity of 588 passengers and 182 crew members. For most sailings, 
in keeping with the luxurious surroundings. There was an average of one crew member for every three passengers. Nori had five decks, which were named in alphabetical order. A was the bridge, while B held a large observation room at the forward of the ship. Decks C and D held staterooms on the port and starboard sides, which is left and right to us landlubbers, and Deck E held crew accommodations. Deck E also held the four gangways on board, which were used to allow people to walk down to the pier or shore when applicable. Traveling on the Nori was a popular summer excursion, particularly amongst older generations. Being on the water helped to stave off the high humidity and warm temperatures of a Great Lake summer. The crew on board was entirely Canadian, although many sailings of the Doronic would have a mostly American passenger list. In the 1940s, it had been a rough decade for the Neuronic. Sailings had been under capacity during World War II, although they started to pick up again in 1947. Her final sailing began on September 14, 1949. Her seven-night itinerary was to be the last one of the season as well, much like the SS Princess Sophia. The Neuronic departed Detroit, Michigan, sailing next for Cleveland, Ohio, where she picked up more passengers and supplies. The first couple of days on board were smooth sailing under the watchful eye of Captain William Taylor. Taylor was a veteran of the steamship company and took a badge of honor in saying that in all of his years of sailing, he had never lost a passenger. All told on that voyage, there were 524 passengers aboard, only 20 of whom were Canadian, and 170 crew members, all of whom were Canadian. The weather was pleasantly warm when Nori docked in Toronto on September 16, 1949. Most passengers disembarked the ship to go out and visit the city. This was their only chance to do so, as the Neuronic would be sailing for Prescott, Ontario, the next day. Nearly all of the crew disembarked as well. During the night of September 17th, a skeleton crew of only 16 were responsible for keeping the ship and its passengers safe. On that evening, Captain Taylor was among those going ashore. He had plans for a dinner party he needed to attend. Without the strict policies that cruise ships now employ with regards to embarkation after a shore excursion, there's actually no record of how many people had returned to the Neuronic that evening. We can guess that some were still taking advantage of the Toronto nightlife. Some crew were still visiting family, surely, and assuring them that they were going to be home within the week. At around midnight, two crew members do a quick cursory inspection of the ship. They do not check any fire equipment. They also do not do a thorough check 
of the passenger decks. That evening, those who chose to stay on board the Neuronic got to eat another meal in the fabulous dining room, and a dance was held in their honor later that evening. Now some chose to retire to their staterooms early, while others were whiling away the hours playing cards and smoking in one of the lounges. Donald Church, a fire insurance salesman, is one of those men. He's sitting in a lounge on sea deck. But at around 2.20 a.m. on September 17th, he decides it's high time to retire. He leaves the lounge on the aft section of the starboard side, but then immediately stops. It seems like there's a bit of a haze in the air. And is that smoke that he's smelling? Walking a little further down the corridor, he sees flames behind a small door. He attempts to open it, but finds it locked. Realizing this is definitely going to be an issue, he rushes off to find a bellboy. The one he finds is 16-year-old Ernest O'Neill. Upon hearing of the fire, Ernest goes to find a fire extinguisher and the keys to open the door, which Ernest is guessing is probably one of the linen closets. At no point when Ernest is grabbing these things does he think to raise the alarm. When Church finds Ernest and alerts him of the fire, the time is 2.30 a.m. The two men make their way back to the linen closet. Ernest confirms what Church has seen. Yes, there is smoke. So he grabs the key ring and working his way through, he finds the one that will open the linen closet. Yanking the door open, the fire within is suddenly flooded with oxygen. The men stagger back from the flames before attempting to douse it with the extinguisher. It's not enough. Church spots a fire hose nearby. He runs, grabs it, and brings it towards the flames. Getting it into position, Church aims the nozzle, and nothing comes out. The fire hose is useless. The men look at each other for a moment before sprinting in opposite directions. Church goes to get his family in their cabin and get them off the ship. Ernest heads to A-deck to tell the captain what is going on. Neither man thinks to wake any of the sleeping passengers. As Ernest races up the stairs, the hungry fire reaches the first of the beautiful wood panels on the walls. Decades of lemon oil means that the wood is even more flammable than it would have been otherwise. The fire spreads quickly. By the time Ernest reaches the captain, who had only returned aboard half an hour ago, a distress call has already been made. Except the distress call wasn't actually from the ship. The station watchman for the pier... He had been reading in his office, his back facing the neuronic. But he was startled to discover that the wall next to him was suddenly lit up in orange. Lifting his head from his book, he was shocked to see the neuronic on fire.
he calls the fire department. It is 2.38 p.m. Only eight minutes after the first crew is notified of the fire, over half the ship is ablaze. Back on the bridge, the ship's horn begins to sound. Captain Taylor instructs a crew member to get on the ship's whistle and give the fire signal. Now, the fire signal is supposed to be three short blasts, followed by one long one. Except the whistle has already been warped by the heat, so all that comes out is a mangled, long sound. Crew members scatter, trying to escape the inferno. The ship's horn sounds over Toronto. Even though a ship-to-shore line was established on the Neuronic, no crew member thinks to call emergency services. Meanwhile, at the Royal York Hotel, dozens of members of the press are gathered in a ballroom to celebrate the Press Club Awards that night. Well buzzed at 2.30 in the morning, some of the press begin to hear the ship's horn. Soon, everybody has abandoned their drinks and is rushing towards the harbor, nearly a kilometer away. One of the first groups off the ship is Donald Church and his family. True to his thought, he went back to his cabin, grabbed his family members and some of their luggage, and sent them down the gangplank. At no point did they warn anybody else. Perhaps they had assumed the crew was going to do something. Except most of the crew did nothing. Now, to be fair to them, all the crew had been trained in fire drills on board. So each one knew how to safely evacuate the ship in case of an emergency. They had done so many fire drills, for many it was easy to just wake up and head down the gangplank. But all of those fire drills they'd done... Not a single one involved passengers. I also have to assume that in an inferno, survival instincts are going to kick in. Of course they're going to try and make it out. Up on passenger decks, the fire is spreading rapidly. More passengers are actually awoken by the commotion of people running through the hallways than they are by any crew warnings. Many passengers opened the doors to their cabin, only to see a huge river of fire, which is how one survivor described it, sinking towards them. Many attempted to make it to the promenade decks at the stern of the ship. From there, some jumped the ten meters into the water, and this was a relatively safe bet. Of the people who did jump into the water, only one, a woman, struck a steel cable as she jumped, which tore the flesh from her arms as she went down. She was soon to be considered one of the walking wounded, and she does survive. Others still on board misjudged what side of the ship they were on, which, side note, this 100% would have been me, I can't tell left from right in a good situation, so the idea of having to do it in life and death definitely means I would have gone to the wrong side of the ship. So, the people who were on the wrong side of the ship 
they jumped too, except that they fell to the pier below. Many of them broke legs and ankles in doing this. Others shimmied down ropes that were tying the ship to the pier. Those that have escaped run towards the first police officers who made it to the scene at around 2.40 a.m. Those police officers would later describe that many of the survivors were screaming. Some were also on fire. The fire department first arrives on the scene at 2.41 a.m. Driving down Young Street, one fire truck sees the inferno already raging and quickly calls for backup. Once they get there, fire hoses are pulled towards the wreck, while others bring ladders that are put against the side of the ship for people to come down. Desperate passengers begin rushing towards them. So many try to get down one ladder, in fact, that it breaks, sending all of them tumbling down to the water. Even more passengers escape by smashing the windows of their cabins and jumping out. Many have bloodied bodies from scraping through the small window. One of the heroes of the night is a man named Donald Williamson. Having just finished a shift at the Goodyear Tire Factory, Donald figured he'd take a walk to go and look at the majestic nori. When he gets there, instead he finds the ship on fire and dozens of people thrashing about in the frigid, oil-slicked waters of Lake Ontario. Without hesitation, Donald finds a paint palette and uses it as a makeshift raft. A police officer jumps on board the raft to help him. Together, they spend the next few hours pulling people aboard the paint pallet and bringing them safely to shore. Back on the pier, firefighters are having a heck of a time. You see, the neuronic has turned white hot from the heat of the flames. It's so hot, firefighters can't get near the ship. And even their fire hoses, when they actually breach the ship, the water within them is turning to steam. For the next hour, the ship's horn continues to blow, mixing with the terrible crackling of the flames, the panicked screams of the passengers, and the cries of pain from survivors too injured to move any further. One of the very last people to leave the ship is Captain Taylor. He had been one of the very few crew members actively warning passengers and trying to help get as many off the ship as possible. The city of Toronto doesn't have enough ambulances in 1949 to handle all of the injured passengers, so city taxi drivers step up, driving to the pier from the King Edward and Royal York Hotels and ferrying the worst of the injured to Toronto General and St. Michael's Hospitals. And they don't charge fare, either. The press is also on hand, documenting the scene in incredible pictures but also helping wherever they can. All told, nearly a thousand people are involved in the rescue effort. But after an hour of fighting the fire, it becomes clear. There's no more screaming. The rescue effort has now turned into a recovery effort. 
Most of the survivors who are considered walking wounded are sent to the Royal York Hotel, where the Red Cross was on standby to deliver aid. Many were given rooms in the hotel. Some survivors even claim that their rooms were high enough at the hotel that they actually watched the neuronic burn for the next couple of hours. The fire is finally doused at 5 a.m., but neither police nor firefighters enter the ship right away. They want to allow it to cool down first. And this proves to be a very smart idea, you see, because not long after the fire is out, before long the back of the ship sinks into Toronto Harbor, too saturated with water to remain afloat any longer. So it's divers that will need to be sent in to recover bodies in that area of the Neuronic. When they are able to enter the ship, police, firefighters, and reporters are shocked. Everything is smoldering, but virtually nothing is left. All the wood is ash. Every pane of glass has melted. All the steel is warped. The decks have collapsed in upon one another, and on the whole ship there's now only one staircase. In the first stateroom, one reporter enters. He sees the charred remains of a mother embracing her baby, trying to protect her from the flames. When firefighters go to put them on a stretcher, they both disintegrate. Other bodies are found tightly embracing each other. Some are found still clutching desperately to ship railings. Even for people who have been hardened by the World War, this is tough to witness. All remains are brought to a temporary morgue, which was set up in the Canadian National Exhibition's Horticulture Building where once the building was filled with the scent of fresh florals, now it is the burnt offerings of Mother Nature. Due to the charring of the remains, traditional methods of identification up until that point proved unhelpful. Thus, the neuronic becomes the first case in Canada in which dental records are used to help identify the deceased. Dentists and forensic technicians are brought from across Canada to help in the efforts. All told, they have 120 people they believe to be dead. Of those, only three would never be identified. Of the 120 victims, only one was Canadian. She was also the only crew member to die. The rest of the victims were American citizens, paying passengers aboard the ship. Many of them were simply too old to outrun the flames. An investigation into the fire began soon afterwards. With the ship in such terrible shape, it was difficult to determine what exactly had happened to start the fire. The official ruling 
states that the likely cause of the accident was an unruly cigarette that had been dropped in the linen closet. Many disagree with this. Those who do disagree have a sneaking suspicion that it was arson. This arson theory grows even stronger a year later. Another ship, this time the SS Quebec, also has a fire on board. It was put out, though. But where did that fire start? A linen closet. That coincidence is too striking for many to ignore. In the end, the blame for the accident is placed squarely with the Canadian steamship line. The inquiry finds them guilty of not having proper fire evacuation procedures in place for their passengers. They also find Captain Taylor guilty of abandoning ship before ensuring the safety of all aboard. As punishment, Taylor is grounded for a year. When the year is up, he retires, too devastated by the losses to continue sailing. In the press and in popular rhetoric, the crew are vilified. After all, other than the one fatality, every single crew member managed to make it safely back to shore, and so many of them had abandoned the passengers without even attempting to notify them of the danger. Safety regulations are put in place after a devastating incident, and the fire aboard the Neuronic is no exception. Sprinklers, fire alarms, and fireproof bulkheads all become necessary parts of cruise ship design in the future. Many of the Neuronic sisters are either pulled from service because they're too old to be fixed, or undergo costly repairs. Clearly marked exits in the case of a fire are also now noted in cabins. It's worth mentioning that when I went on my Alaska cruise, there was a small fire aboard. Except we were just alerted over the PA system and told that it was a minor emergency and that things were handled. It took ten minutes. But even those ten minutes, I remember feeling a little twinge of nervousness. So I can only imagine what the poor people on board the Neuronic felt. By the end of the year, the Neuronic had been floated to the surface and tugged to Hamilton, where she was turned into scrap metal. The golden age of the Great Lake Liners had ended with her. Although today, cruising the Great Lakes has begun to make a comeback. The next season in 2024 has about five lines running cruises throughout the Great Lakes. There stands a memorial near the original pier site, as I mentioned in the opening. A grave marker also rests in Mount Pleasant Cemetery, dedicated to all those who lost their lives in the fire. It also contains the remains of the three unidentified victims of the Neuronic. It's also worth mentioning that Toronto's nickname at one point was the Big Smoke, we are a city not unaccustomed to fire. And with the horrors of World War II, 
much like with the horrors of World War I and the Sophia. It's possible that people were too inundated with death to give much attention to the neurotic. Many Torontonians will have never heard of this story. But the next time you are on a boat, or anywhere enclosed, and find yourself looking at a fire extinguisher, take a moment to remember those who lost their lives aboard the Neuronic, all because they were hoping for an end-of-season vacation. I'm Rachel Stewart, and this has been Canadian Disasters. True North Strong and Destructive. <laughs>